What is it with banks? It's February 2024, and we can't get away from these things. Now, it can't have been rate hikes like we were told last year. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in this situation talking about regionals in the United States yet again. We all know what the problem is. It's commercial real estate. The government fueled a massive speculative bubble in 2021 and 2022, and now somebody's got to pay for it. And you and I both know what that means. Eventually, the taxpayers are going to be on the hook for a good chunk of it. The only questions we have are what has to happen in between to get the government involved, and most important of all, what are the chances that the commercial real estate problem this time, unlike residential mortgages last time, actually might be contained in a small, easily handled segment of the marketplace? And in order to answer that question, we've got to start putting some numbers on this thing. Even though we don't have a whole lot of good specific information, some of that is beginning to trickle out with the events of New York Community Bank Corp and the regional bank sector's reemergence onto the front pages in February 2024. A good place to start, the aggregate statistics. We're going to use the Financial Accounts of the United States, or the Z1, that the Federal Reserve puts together. Unfortunately, it takes them a while to do so, so the latest statistics that we have only go through the third quarter of last year. But even so, Trying to paint this picture with a broad brush as a start, these will do just fine. When we look at the Z1 statistics for multifamily mortgages, what you see is that, first of all, we have a big government problem in that space to begin with. It goes back to the 2008 crisis. Essentially, the, Z the GSEs are basically the only game in town because the marketplace wants safety and liquidity, and what better place to get safety and liquidity than a stamp of approval from a GSE? So government, uh, government shares or GSE share of the multifamily mortgage market went from 41% in 2015 to 48% by 2021, which, as we all know, that helps fuel bubble properties, even before we get to the post-pandemic bubble era. We're talking about $2 trillion in multifamily mortgages outstanding uh, in 2023. So this is a, there's a fair amount of debt related to just multifamily mortgages and multifamily property. But what you notice is that there really wasn't any change in growth rate uh, around 2021 and 2022 because in between, in the 2021-2022 uh, period, commercial banks stepped in and really picked up some of the slack or the slack that was developing. They, they took market share from the GSEs. So from the Z1 statistics, we see there's a bulge in commercial bank holdings of multifamily mortgages. Started around 526 billion, then in comes the rush of government aid, deposits flowed into commercial banks. Commercial banks said, why don't we start lending some of these deposits? And they did. They lent a good chunk of it into multifamily mortgages because there was a lot of demand for that kind of property at the time, which is really the, the crucial piece to understand here is that in 2021 and in the early part of 2022, so many people were convinced the dollar is dead. This is 1970-style inflation. We need real assets. It wasn't a credit-fueled bubble in the same way that the housing bubble had been in the prior generation in the 1990s and 2000s. This was a distortion based on a whole bunch of stuff, but really the government's intervention because of the pandemic. And it not only distorted the real economy, it distorted, distorted the banking system, and it distorted investor preferences. 
huge demand for real properties, which banks flush with some cash were only too happy to help out with. So commercial banks' multifamily mortgages ballooned from $526 billion at the start of this thing to around $637 billion in about a year and three quarters. That's a huge increase just in multifamily, just among commercial banks. Obviously, there's more going on outside of them. So there's a big increase in exposure to the multifamilies market at the worst possible time because the valuations and the, the assumptions that went on in 2021 and 2022, as I've talked about in a previous video, they were nothing like realistic. So the banks are indeed somewhat exposed to multifamily commercial real estate too. And that's a fair amount. We're talking about a, a little over $110 billion increase in just a condensed period of time. It's a big percentage increase too. But the real big one here is commercial mortgages, not multifamily mortgages on apartment buildings, but commercial mortgages on commercial properties, office towers, the stuff that we keep hearing about over and over and over again. According to the Z1 stats, what you see is that after the big housing bust that just slammed the door on every bit of uh, every every kind of mortgage financing in the wake of 2007, 2008, 2009, you get you get a partial uh, recovery in the middle to 2010s. But the growth rate was only really around 4% in the last half of the uh, last half of last decade, uh, coming back after that bust. And the surge really doesn't get going until the third quarter of 2021. So after a, a wave of money goes into residential properties in 2020 and early part of 2021, and then multifamily mortgages and, and multifamily properties earlier in 2021, then you get to the commercial real estate bubble later on. This seems to be like the third part that joined into that, that whole frenzy. So you have, uh, according to Z1, about 3.15 trillion in commercial mortgages outstanding uh, in the third quarter of 2021 that grows to about 3.6 trillion by the first quarter of 2023. That's a huge, enormous increase of almost half a trillion in just a little over a year. Everybody went crazy for the worst kind of investment. Think about it, work from home. The economy was not booming, especially in terms of actual work being done and output being output. It looked great in nominal terms, but in actual volume and work, it was nothing of the sort. I mean, it took forever just to close the gap with jobs. I mean, getting people back to work, let alone getting people back to work in an office setting. So a ton of money went chasing after real projects, real assets, including commercial real estate, which were not some of the best ideas here. Let's be perfectly honest. The valuations got way out of whack because that's what happens in every bubble era. By the numbers, commercial banks were a big part of that increase in commercial mortgages, of course. But also we see a huge jump in ABS issuers, which are asset-backed securities where they pull together various assets, including commercial mortgages, and then sell, securitize and sell them to the public. Um, mortgage REITs were a huge part of this too, as well as, surprisingly, non-financial corporate businesses, maybe giving themselves mortgages on their own properties. But of that $455 billion net increase in commercial mortgages outstanding during this period in question, $252 billion of that was the commercial banking sector. And of course, we know a huge chunk of that was regional banks, which is why we're talking about them right now. $52 billion came from life insurers, $34 billion from ABS issuers, about $24 billion from 
commercial mortgage REITs, and then $60 billion from non-financial companies. So commercial mortgage debt was fairly is fairly widespread throughout the financial system, not just concentrated in regional banks. There's a fair amount all over the place, which means that while this is an issue for the banking system, it's not strictly an issue for the banking system. That's one reason why valuations have gone the way that they have. According to Green Street's estimates of commercial prices, commercial property prices, with all of that funding rushing into the commercial real estate space in 2020 and 2021, their price index surged by 28% to early 2022, which just goes to show just how frenzied that bubble was. So it backs up what we see in the debt statistics. It was a huge increase in lending in that space that raised demand for a relatively inelastic supply, which means supply couldn't really change for all of the money coming in, which meant a price imbalance more than a credit imbalance. Essentially, there was way too much demand for what what properties were out there and way too much demand for all the wrong reasons. People convinced themselves, first of all, the dollar was going to go to zero, but more than that, they convinced themselves the economic fundamentals of owning an office tower were going to come back. They were going to be good at some point. The economy was going to boom and make the investment worth it and pay off. Same in multifamily real estate too, but to a lesser degree. The valuations and the fundamentals got really stretched in commercial properties. And now it's about how do we revalue all of these commercial properties without upsetting the entire system, which may be more fragile than we would like it to be. Certainly more fragile than what policymakers keep telling us and reassuring us. Uh, Just go back to Green Street. Since early 2022, their index of commercial properties is down about 20%. And they're hoping with the Fed's rate cuts, which is not really about the Fed, but with lower rates, essentially that might be the bottom. And so there's some hope that if this is the bottom, we take our lumps and see where things shake out. But if there are more losses if there are more concentrated losses in certain areas that risks triggering something bigger. And a lot of that depends upon whether or not there are actually buyers for the sellers that are, that are going to be forced into selling at some point down the road. And if there are enough buyers, prices can normalize in a relatively orderly way. It doesn't lead to a disorderly fire sale situation that's when it could actually be contained. But if there is too many, too many more imbalances, not enough buyers, too many questions, not enough information, that's where we could see another downside, not just in terms of maybe market prices of those transactions that take place, but also how those prices translate into valuations across the entire sector. Not just in terms of what uh, regional banks might be holding in commercial real estate and multifamily mortgages, but everyone else around the rest of the financial system too, because they're going to be impacted by all this, including their willingness to buy at distressed prices. If there's enough losses that are widely enough shared, then some of the buyers that we're going to need to buy at distressed prices might be hamstrung themselves. And therefore it means falling prices have to fall further in order to normalize and rebalance the entire sector.
One reason why we're bringing this up now, I mean, we've been talking about commercial real estate for the last year, but the reason why it's come up again, obviously, is New York Community Bank Corp. And there were some more developments with that specific bank just yesterday. First of all, management was hit with a lawsuit by shareholders who basically seem to be very angry that their share price, the share price on the stock has collapsed. Um, they're blaming management for not uh, being upfront with the losses that they're now talking about and whether or not maybe there's more. They're being too optimistic in taking over the, the parts of Signature Bank that uh, the that, uh, New York Community Bank absorbed last year. But then the big stuff came after hours when Moody's downgraded New York Community Bank Corp., their uh, long-term debt issuer rating to junk, BA2, they cited a couple factors like confidence sensitivity, which just basically means they have no way to model the potential losses in NYCB's portfolio, which raises a couple of red flags here. If Moody's is saying we don't have enough information to be at all confident about how many losses could be triggered in the CRE portfolio at NYCB, um, that, you know, again, it gets people's attention talking about what really are the losses concentrated in this one particular bank. And is it is is this widespread? Is this shared around the rest of the uh, industry? They also cited NYCB's uh, tendency to fund a lot of their operations in wholesale markets, including FHLB advances. The fear here is that if push comes to shove, NYCB won't have enough collateral like the big three banks that failed last year and eventually be shut out of wholesale markets. And since wholesale markets are a huge part of their funding anyway, their limited ability to tap into them in an emergency situation, including FHLB advances. That's something that comes up repeatedly here. NYCB stock is down again today to 377. It continues to fall. It was down big yesterday, even before the Moody's announcement. As I said, today it's down another 8%. Basically, there's not a whole lot of faith in the market that this is over for New York Community Bank Corp. But what about everyone else? That's the question that we're really asking here. Okay, it's not good for NYCB. Shareholders are angry. They're going to sue management. But what about the rest of the regional banks and what the rest of the banking system as a whole? Well, we keep seeing the same pattern recur in at least these regional bank stocks, which suggests that the equity market, forever, however good and however much you want to put into the equity market, continues to see the same types of risks and the same types of dangers in all of these stocks, including NYCB. And I've mentioned this before in last week's video, where you see the KBW Regional Bank Index shot up during, the, during that period when uh, interest rates were falling. The bond rally really got going and higher for longer was being rethought in the equity market too. As bond rates move lower, regional bank shares surge right up until just after the FOMC meeting in December. The same one when Jay Powell said, yeah, we've been discussing rate cuts. So it's odd that in the immediate aftermath of that FOMC meeting, all of these regional bank stocks, they all stopped their rally and suddenly they're like, wait a minute, what happened? Why is the Fed actually talking about rate cuts here? And what you see is this repeated pattern. You got a surge in these bank stocks up until December 14th and then sideways to lower until we get the news in New York Community Bank Corp. And then another leg down in a lot of these shares. And I'll pick out a couple of other examples here to show you what I mean. One that keeps coming up repeatedly is a company called Brookline, or bank called Brookline. That stock had surged for about 11.24 in mid-December, fell back with the, hey, why is the Fed cutting rates type of uh, rethinking things in, into early January. It announced some earnings on the 24th that seemed to be pretty good. The stock shot up to 11.40 again. 
And then the the news with New York Community Bank Corp comes out, and now Brookline's shares are down to under $10 and still falling. One of the things that they noted in that earnings report from the end of January is that their deposit levels had dropped just a little bit from eight and a half, from eight point six billion to eight and a half billion on lower broker deposits, which broker deposits actually get classified as wholesale funding. That keeps coming up, but they said, you know, our other wholesale fundings actually surged during the fourth quarter by two hundred and forty one million dollars to a total of one point four billion, which maybe puts Brookline in the same bucket as NYCB as maybe over-reliant on wholesale funding. One other bank that we should look at is something is a bank called Bank United. Bank United, same kind of situation with, with Brookline, their deposit base actually grew pretty substantially in the fourth quarter, but broker deposits fell by about 200 million. Bank United management, however, came out and said, you know, Wholesale funding isn't really a big part of our business, uh, including FHLB advances and broker deposits. Those declined by 200, $228 million in the fourth quarter, and they have paid down their FHLB advances by $2.4 billion since last March. So Bank United appears to be an opposite case as the other two that I just mentioned. Furthermore, Bank United said, our commercial real estate exposure is modest. Commercial real estate loans total 23.6% of loans at the end of last year. Um, and the weighted average loan to value of the CRE portfolio is 56%. So they seem to be pretty well protected to a low exposure to commercial real estate, yet the bank stock is being sold anyway. So we have to, our original question here, will this be contained? From the Z1 statistics, as well as any of the, uh, what limited data we have around from the rest of the financial system, we know commercial real estate is going to be a problem. We know that a flood of money came in and distorted reality, like every bubble period. The causes might be different in every bubble period, but bubbles are bubbles. And after you have a bubble period, there's going to be a bust that means a reckoning. There's going to be some losses. There's going to be some pain. And taxpayers are likely to absorb a chunk of it. The question is, what has to happen to trigger the taxpayer bailout? Does it get to be bad enough that it spills over beyond a couple of these individual small regional banks? And the truth is, we don't have enough information right now. However, the bits and pieces that we do have suggest this is something to pay attention to. Behind all of this, remember, the bond market. Interest rates are low, demand for safety and liquidity un incredibly high, as I mentioned in another recent video, talking about the flood of treasury issu issuance that the private market easily absorbed and at really higher prices. Well, here's one reason, maybe one reason, why that's been the case, why demand for safety and liquidity is, such, is, in, is so high to begin with. Because even though we don't have a whole lot of information, we don't have a whole lot of information. Maybe some of those on the inside of the bond market actually do. And what they're seeing, maybe it's a little bit more concerning than the reassurances that we continue to get that this is just about this one bank in New York City and it doesn't apply too far beyond that, that, that single institution. We know that's not the case. What we're trying to really figure out is how much farther beyond this one single institution this will go and whether that will be enough to produce systemic effects. And I don't mean a bank run like 1929. I don't necessarily mean something like 2008. That's the thing about asset bubbles like this. There's not a whole lot of information to them. 
In fact, that's the big problem with the downside to asset bubbles is we don't have enough answers. So it leads, it risks leading to the situation where people just have to sell first, ask questions later, or get answers to the questions they're asking way too late. We aren't near that position yet. We're not anywhere close to something like that, but there's a little bit of smoke coming up here, more than enough to pay attention to. I mentioned treasury demand defying massive treasury supply, and it was massive, which raises question about how massive demand is and why that is. All that's in the video link below. As always, I thank you very much for joining me. Huge thank you, Eurodollar University members and subscribers. And until next time, take care.